It explodes in the no man's land no podcast ever dared cross before. That is that the tagline? That's a great tagline. Isn't it? That's why I wanted to do it. Oh, yeah, I love that. It's such a good poster, too. And the poster makes you think that it's a movie about a badass military operation in no man's land. You know, like a bunch of fucking heroes. Right. Right. Tearing it up, you know. Right. It's it's I mean, the poster is like Kirk Douglas in like action pose. His hand like gripped up near the grimace. It makes it feel like this whole movie is going to be him in the fucking trenches wrestling people to the ground. Uh, Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to get the full image version of this because it's it's one of your. I've got it. I've got it. The, it's the got two, a two tag tagline. Thing. I've got the other one. Now the I, I'll butcher this as well. Now the podcast blasts open the bombshell story of a colonel who led his regiment into hell and back while their maddened general waited for them with a firing squad. I mean, you know, that's a good tagline, and it's not inaccurate. It's I not. Guess. It's not. Yeah. It just makes it you know like a tale of daring do. It makes it seem like a Kirk Douglas action epic, which this movie is uh, fascin- fascinatingly not, I would say. Sure. I love this movie. Yeah. Can I throw it a hot take? Uh-huh. Really fucking good. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's great. Yeah. Uh, had yeah. you ever seen it before? I'd seen it before. I hadn't seen it in a while. Can I ask, what was your favorite part? Oh, when it ended? <laughs> When you were done, well, that's just, your favorite part. Just I get you know it's been discussed much on the show. I get very stressed out watching uh, war films, even when I think they're good. I find it to be a somewhat unpleasant experience. Uh, so I, I, you know, I think the whole movie is very well made. But the moment when it ended and I could start uh, breathing normally again and working on lowering my heart rate, even for a movie that's not that combat heavy, although the one big combat sequence is harrowing. It's very impressive. Yes. Yeah. Uh, our guests can talk anytime. By yeah. The way. Oh, you can openly just invited to. In. Yeah. Oh. Know, just chat. Encouraged. I'm used to the construct where it's like we have to pretend that I'm coming to the door, like the, the Mr. Rogers neighborhood version. We do the opposite of this. Even though your name is in the title, but right now I love I love the early break in from the guest. I, it makes me it makes me very happy. The call is coming from inside the house. That's what we sort of go for. They've been mm-hmm. here the whole time. Yeah, now it's creepier because I was silent for a couple minutes and yet I right. was here. Right. That's what we're we're looking to yeah love to, to make shock a and terrify entrance. our listeners at every turn. And settle. Good. <laughs> yeah. Ben, I'm curious, uh, Producer Ben, did, did you have a favorite part? It felt like you were asking because there's a part you wanted to spotlight. Oh, not in particular. Uh, well, how about, you know, I like a good ditch, but I think there's there's too much of a good thing, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it, World World War One was certainly too much of a good thing on the ditch front. Yeah, yes, exactly. that, that, that's a good, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, it's fun to hang out in there for maybe an hour, but right. like... A year? No thanks. It's important for you to watch World War One movies so that you you are reminded that the, there is such a thing as too much ditch. You know the limits. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You can take it too far. I mean, there's nothing more brutal and, you know, depressing than trench warfare and any image you see of it, you're like, good God, like, this is horrible. Sucks. But then, like, I also... Right. I also did grow up like watching Blackadder, which is a critique of World War One. obviously. Mm-hmm. That is not like pro-World War One. But when you're a kid, you're like, oh, they've got their little like houses, you know, like their little beds in there. And so I don't know. When you're a kid, I think there's some charm to uh, trench life that is obviously, you know, only in sanitized sitcoms. 
I was kind of thinking that while watching this, which immediately was a thought I felt very guilty for. Right, me too. I feel a lot of guilt. But if it's in a set, then like, yeah, there is that childlike part of you that's like, oh, force. Right. And yeah, I was just thinking of Blackadder as well, because like any any enclosed space, that Lego they sleep in in uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. These are all exciting for a child. Right. I think I think I would like it if the um, the war wasn't happening. I, I you know, it's really I, I think we're getting actually to the to the breakthrough here, which is. It's it's not that World War One had too many ditches. It's that the ditches were the respite from the war that you had to <laughs> sure. stay in. I think I'd, I'd happily live in a trench if when I crawled out of it, I could just take a pleasant stroll and not have to spend 10 harrowing minutes blowing my whistle trying to dodge bullets. A lot of whistle blowing. A lot of whistle blowing. It is wild that World War One they were like, how are we going to fucking convince people to do this? And they were like, I don't know, blow whistles, blow blow, whistles. Like, so many whistles. When I was like 13, I grew up in Britain here. I, uh, Sarah, I don't know if you know that, um, but I did. I grew up in the United Kingdom. I don't know what Griffin, this is. You cool with that? I don't understand why you're taking the time to ask Sarah if she knows this and not ask Ben and I. <laughs> okay, Ben, Griff, are you aware of that? I Absolutely spent, not. Uh, my, First I've ever never heard, heard this ever. Brand ever new information. Before. You don't have an accent. Yeah, where'd it go? Yeah, I know, I know. I get that a lot. It went it went away. I was born in America, you know. I, I, Where's anyway. your chimney sweep hat? I, my chimney sweep hat is in my coat closet. I don't where's know. Your, where's your teacup? My tea, it's in, like, the kitchen. What, what are you talking about? You think I have to carry that shit around all the time? Where's your friggin' biscuits? Yeah. <laughs> I could do with a biscuit around here. That'd be nice. Um, I went... When I was, I guess, what you'd think, like eighth grade or whatever, I went on a um, a battlefield, a World War One battlefields trip with my history class. Mm. So we went to Belgium, and you know, you go see some trenches, and you go right, you know, you're you're visiting all these battlefields, and they show you the graveyards, which are crazy. I mean, it is crazy. Mm-hmm. So many gravestones, and then they'll show you like the enemy graveyard, like they're like, this is where we buried the Germans, and they're like every headstone there's like 40 bodies right like because they were just like piling them in without any real you know care and i remember i took so many pictures of the graveyards because we were like 13 years old and we were like oh my god this is crazy and i came home and my parents were like so like tell us about your trip like show us the pictures and i was just like uh this is a graveyard with no people in the picture uh this is the german graveyard and they were just like who cares like what this is all you took pictures of that's all. That's my story. How are you going to take a picture that a ghost shows up in if you don't? That That's was what I, how I thought that was going, was that your parents were like, there's a strange like, light. What is this blur on the, the image here? Yeah. I don't know. Don't, don't give a 13-year-old a camera, 13-year-old boy on a graveyard, uh, on a battlefield <laughs> trip a camera. You know, he's not going to get you anything good. I don't know. We should test that hypothesis. <laughs> okay. Yeah, let's, let's get together let's a sample A bunch group. of 13-year-old boys on a yeah. battlefield trip. That's a great found footage movie. What, what are all go. these 13-year-old boys doing on the battlefield with iZone cameras? I don't know. Fucking blank check <laughs> sent them here. <laughs> they got those Polaroid sticker strips. Don't you think that a successful podcast, like the natural next step is to expand into yeah, more reenactments? Because I've often thought it, that. There are the steps of just, you do the podcast, you start a Patreon, T Public page, war reenactments. 
your Patreon goal is like, we will reenact the Battle of Ypres, right? You know, that's it. <laughs> 9,000 subscribers. We're getting everyone on a plane. We're sending them to Belgium. You're going to dig trenches. Yeah. You're going to jump at each other. Oh, man. Wow. There were apparently five battles of Ypres. I just remember going to Ypres. We went there. Must be nice. Horrible war. Horrible war. I think it was just a nice, boring trip. Oh, I'm sure that this is something that uh, other graduates of the American school system will echo here. But I feel like growing up World War One, we did have a unit on it in seventh grade. But until then, there was this pattern of like it's it felt like we were going chronologically through American history and we would like waste a bunch of time in mm-hmm. the Industrial Revolution. And then it felt like the teachers were always like, skip ahead. World War Two. And at the time, I was like, they're not managing their time well. And now I'm like, I think there's a reason we didn't really do much World War One in school, because it's like, yeah, and then everybody died right. for no right. reason. And that's hard also, to put a World spin War on one that. Also, World War I maybe got Terminator 2'd a little bit, where the sequel is just so <laughs> fucking <laughs> big. It's true. And it's memorable. huge, and the, and this, and the stakes, and the sca- and like iconic villain, you know. It does. Ha- it has a great villain. It's true. <laughs> it's got an incredible villain. It's so easy to just sort of like get your mind around. There's a second Terminator. I get it. This guy's unstoppable. Yeah. Whereas, like the villain of World War One, it's like, uh, you know, uh, European alliance structure and. Yeah, well, every country kind of had a guy with a mustache who was rich and kind of evil. And you're like, oh, okay. And what happened afterwards? Nothing. Everyone still didn't like each other. And they just did it all over 20 years later. Like, yeah. That's that's kind of what's most insane is you feel like the takeaway from World War I should have been, let's never do this again. That's the war to end all wars. That was literally what they said. Yes. They should have just called it World War. In a way, they were dooming us by calling it World War One. It's like, don't call it fucking Remo Williams' now The Adventure Griffin. Begins. They no, didn't call this, it that. They did. And the, and the audacity. Fucking Doug's first movie over here. <laughs> yeah, they dug no. No, but they did mess up because they called it The Great War. And everyone maybe mistook that after a while for like, Great War. All right. Can we do a greater war? Sure. Um, I don't know. It became a, it I don't know. A We're making fun <laughs> of a thing that is just an absolute moral calamity that resulted in the deaths of tens of millions. Yeah. But what are you supposed to do? How do you grapple with these things? Yeah, war's terrible. Every time we fucking watch a war movie on this podcast, I just go, why is anyone doing this? Ever. I frequently feel like I'm begging whatever listeners I have on any show I'm on forgiveness for like, becoming too giggly when things are depressing and for like my very well-developed sense of gallows humor. And this is the most appropriate movie we could talk about, talk with gallows humor about because it's literally, you know, most of it takes place on the eve of an execution. So there's, I feel like there's no more appropriate subject for this demeanor. We're all exhibiting Yeah, trench kind of nature's gallow, you know? Yeah, It, it could be called trench humor. It could be called trench humor. This is not like a funny movie, obviously, but it is a movie about, you know, absurdity, right? The the sort of like dark, surreal, like behavior. There, there, There is something like very darkly comical about this movie. Like Dr. Strangelove yeah. pushes it into yeah. a level of absurdity where you can actually have 
jokes. Right, it's cartoony. But I yeah. feel like there's a, a much greater connection between those two films than I had considered before. And this just feels like it's it's sort of a, a clenched humor at like, this is so fucking stupid. It's very stupid. Yeah. Uh, Griff, introduce our podcast and our guest. Listen, the thing is that this is a podcast called Blank Check with Griffin and David. I'm Griffin. I'm David. It's a podcast about filmographies, directors who have massive success early on in their careers and are given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion projects they want. And sometimes those checks clear and sometimes they bounce baby. And this is a mini series on the films of Stanley Kubrick. Kubrick. I, got, I saw people on the Reddit fighting about this the other day because Brits say Kubrick, but apparently it is Kubrick. I say Kubrick. Hmm. Apparently that's English of me to call him Kubrick. Right. Kubrick. Apparently it is Kubrick, and then when he went to England, people assumed it was Kubrick, and he didn't correct them. Huh. What an interesting guy. For, for a man who you imagine, if they mispronounce his name, he'd go, can we get 100 more takes of that until you say it correctly? <laughs> um, While crying, ideally. Absolutely. The miniseries is called Pods Wide Cast. Today we're talking about Paths of Glory, which is sort of the guarantor to the guarantor in his career. Sort of. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly his first hit, right? I yes. guess it wasn't even a huge hit, but it's a well-regarded movie with a star. Uh, that's, that's a big deal. It was certainly his first A picture in terms of sort of uh, classification and working with a big star and uh, studio and everything. And then it opens the door for him to uh, make a giant blockbuster later. But our guest today is the host of You're Wrong About, but I would say almost more relevantly, uh, You Are Good, a movie podcast that is about uh, uh, movies and feelings. Is that how you would put it? It's sort of about uh, the relationship between movies and emotions and our emotions to them and how they help us process our emotions. And is that, am I, am I totally butchering this? I've been listening to a lot of episodes recently, but I'm trying to figure out how to present this. This is certainly a movie that makes me feel emotions. Yes. Oh, my God. The, this movie is like 40 pounds of emotions yes. in a 20 pound bag, I would say. Um, and I am also looking forward to talking about how much you can get done in 87 minutes. Kind of incredible. But yeah, we have like refused to succinctly describe that show and left it up to other people. And it started off being about dad movies and dads in movies and working through dad feelings by watching movies. And then last year we were just like, let's just have it be about all feelings. But it's I think it it also has a function of like a lot of the movies we talk about are sort of like feel good movies or movies like aimed at or specifically beloved by tween girls. Mm. And there's also an element of talking about how like there is uh, important things to discuss about practical magic. Oh, I mean, you're preaching to the fucking choir here, David. This is this is <laughs> David's. The, this is the snare drum that David's beating all the time. Practical magic is a fantastic movie. Thank you. Not everyone knows that. It's very sad for them. And the thing about Practical Magic is... Sarah Marshall's our I, guest, by I, the way. I didn't get to the point where I said the name. Sarah Marshall's our guest today. Oh, yeah. Yes. That's, Sorry that's about my that. name. Yeah. Oh, so, hi, Sarah. Thank you for joining hi. us, Sarah. <laughs> Thank you for joining The thing <laughs> about Practical Magic... And I, I can't remember if I've said this on mic, but I don't think I have. I'm a big fan of that movie and of Griffin Dunn's movies in general. You've always been pushing for a Griffin Dunn miniseries. And I've always said there can only be one Griffin on this podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> and... I saw it in theaters at the age of 12. Like, I was a little young for it, I mm -hmm. think. 
Uh, and also I was like a 12 year old boy, you know, like, I don't know if I was like totally locked into this, like, you know, to the, but I, I was excited for it and I saw it and it really freaked me out when I was 12 years old in a theater. It's kind of a dark movie, which is sort of the secret of many a Griffin Dunn film. There's a zombie in that movie. People forget that. <laughs> There's a fucking zombie. They raise the dead and it, it goes very poorly for them. Like, it's not <laughs> cute. Like, and so, uh, and then I, when I came back to it years later, I was like, yeah, God, there's nothing like this. It's such a strange tonal mix. And then I realized I felt the same about Addicted to Love. And like, I was like, oh, right. Like Griffin does kind of, that's kind of his thing, I suppose. Uh, yeah. Anyway, love practical magic. Would love to live in that house. Did he just direct a new film or am I mistaken? He made a film called, uh, well, he worked on, no, no. He worked on some kind of anthology film called okay. Within that didn't go okay. anywhere. But I believe the last thing he made was that Joan Didion documentary that went to Netflix. Yeah. But but I thought perhaps I'm mistaken here and perhaps it was something he was acting in. But I felt like I was seeing him post online what felt like maybe his new film as a director. Like he just maybe finished something. Maybe I'm wi wildly wrong. Uh, Let's see. I, I'm not. I mean, it's he has this segment in this thing called Within. That must be, but, yeah. But that that's, yeah, I don't know. I, okay. And, it, you know, it's got like Don Cheadle in it. I don't know. It looks like yeah. Julianne Moore. You know, it's got some real people in it. It's the kind of thing that premieres at Tribeca, though. Not, not to be rude. Incredibly rude. Uh, found uh, dead in a trench. Um, Sarah. You are someone who uh, many, many people have been telling us to get on the podcast for a very long time. I feel like a lot of our mutual friends and our shared guests, uh, like uh, Dana Schwartz and Chris Gethard, Josh Gondelman and people, whenever they would go on your show, they'd reach out to us and say like, have you had Sarah Marshall on? She would have a good conversation yeah. with you guys. And this is long overdue. It's been in the books for a while. It took a long time of back and forth to schedule and everything. Uh, but I'm curious, just because it's been pinned for so long, what made you choose this movie? I think I gave you three options, and I forget what the third one was, but the one of the other ones was Barry Lyndon. And you picked this one, and I was very relieved because I do love Barry Lyndon, but like just the idea of watching it, you just like kind of, you know, it's like taxing in a different way. And this movie um, is, I don't know if, you guys have this, but this is one of my favorite movies and one of my formative movies. And until watching it to talk about it with you, I had only seen it one time because mm -hmm. I saw it once. And the it was at the Portland Art Museum, which used to have free admission for Portland State students. And so I saw a lot of movies there. I saw this there and was just like once was enough. Like the entire thing is like tattooed onto my brain now. It's like entered into my soul like an expanding bullet um i and just i was like yeah that's i'm good that was my shot or whatever and so it's yeah it's that that's rare for me to not really revisit stuff like that and i think i mean i was excited to talk about it because i remember like seeing it alone in a theater and not really meeting a ton like it doesn't come up that much in conversation but it feels my personal thought is that this is this is my personal Kubrick or Kubrick movie, however you want to say it. And I think and I watching it now, I was like, I feel like he just like 
got what human emotions were about and then was just like, I'm done with that. That was terrible. I'm going to make other stuff now. <laughs> it is funny how much his movies become more and more anthropological with every film after this, yeah. right? It's sort of yes. like he he creates a greater distance between him and the subject and the microscope. And and this one, it feels like he's really there. I don't know. I mean, doing these episodes, it's been really interesting to chart. And we haven't been doing the Kubricks in, in linear recording order, but sort of his start as a photojournalist into then becoming a documentary filmmaker, into becoming the most controlling fictional filmmaker. And, and the way the sort of documentary approach and styling and attitudes seep away with each film, you know? Yeah. He stops being someone who wants to capture something and starts being someone who wants to create and control a thing. And watching this made me, I mean, this is a tendency of his that I have very conflicting feelings about. And I have conflicting feelings about The Shining, which I've talked about on you are good. But watching this, I was like, yes, like, go, Stanley, go be free, like, go identify with the robot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess this is his last human drama in a way. In a I way. People would maybe object to us saying that. Um, but yeah. it is funny how this is certainly like, I don't think I saw this film until I'd probably seen all the later classics mm -hmm. i had seen strange love 2001 clockwork orange at the very least the shining right probably barry Lyndon as well and i came back around to this one and i was i think i had a different i think i thought this was i think i thought it was what the poster was telling me i think i thought it was <laughs> uh, you know like a really epic war movie with kirk douglas probably similar to spartacus in terms of like scale right and then when i found out that it was basically a like a legal drama of sorts like which is basically like my favorite genre of movie like people talking shit out in a courtroom and like you know maneuvering i know that it's sort of an absurd legal drama and it's set within a legal system that makes no sense but you know you know what i mean like yeah. that did surprise me and i almost yeah I, I guess he the closest thing he's made to this since this is strange love because strange love is also people talking through absurdity by and large right that's what i'm saying they're very Paired movies, oddly, yeah. You know, you're no, you're absolutely right. And then, of course, in Strange Love, he's you know he's turning the dials up, right. and the you know everything is ridiculous. But this is a ridiculous movie too. This is this is it's just that this is also rooted in reality, uh, not not in total absurdity. It, it's also it's it's strange when you think about Kubrick as this guy who would just jump from one genre to another, a different style of film. I have right. to make my this, I have to make my that I want to play in all these different sandboxes. And then you're like, he made like four proper war movies. He kind yeah, of kept sure. coming back to war, you know, Barry hmm. uh, and Barry Lyndon is kind of a That's war the thing. movie too. Uh, you, other movies outside of those four that touch on war seriously, but there are four films, this strange love, fear and desire and full metal jacket. No, oh, well, no, that I'm I would saying, count Spart Spartacus as a war movie. But that's yeah. what I'm saying. There are four right. movies that are explicitly war as main genre. You're right, you're right. You're and right. then you also go like Lyndon touches on war, Spartacus touches on war, you know? It, it is kind of the dominant theme or at least interest subject for him. And I think part of it is the way that like war exposes these odd aspects of the human condition and, and 
primal desires, fears and desires, if you will, and all these sorts of things. But this is the only one that's like through and through a war movie in a bizarre way. And the fact that it's a weird kind of legal drama watching this again, it's because I, I had seen it the first time, I don't know, 12 years ago, something like that. So it's like meeting who I was when I was much younger and sort of seeing how the way I felt about this movie predicted the kinds of things I would do with my adult life. And I was like, oh, of course I love this because it's all about injustice which I'm fixated on. And it's a legal drama. It's like, it feels like one of, in a way, one of the few truly accurate legal dramas, because you have an incredibly short trial that you have three hours to prepare for. And the prosecution is extremely condescending and throws out everything of value that you have to say, which as far as I know is how actual trials tend to go. And we don't get to see it that way because it makes for unbelievably depressing media. Depressing. (laughs) Right, right. Yes. Did you folks see that, like, David Simon cites this regularly as the number one influence on The Wire? Hmm. That makes sense. Sure. That this was the movie he saw. Yeah, right. He's like, the the telling a story about how the institutions fuck over its people and, and the people on the ground versus the people in the offices and all that sort of shit. That, like, this is the sort of Rosetta Stone, if you will, for him. Uh, but also, yeah, and also, right, the life of being a middle manager in an institution that right. can be violent and and oppressive, um, which is always such a strange position. I mean, because the best thing about The Wire, well, there's lots of good things about The Wire, but, like, is those middle manager characters who are often adversarial and villainous, but then also at the same time, you know, are kind of just, you know, like they're just being doing the bidding of forces above them that are even more villainous and amorphous and all that. I don't know. Anyway, it's sort of the most fascinating thing about this movie, though, is that it is like a a middle management movie. It is a movie about middle management. Yeah. You know, kind of. You guys ever you, you don't you don't know, Griff. About Cardassians. I know, right? You know, you never really got into the Cardassians in Star Trek The Next Generation. I'm sorry to bring this up. I I, I, to I'm sorry. We're we'll doing this episode. Before. We're doing this episode over Zoom. And, you know, it's a regular Zoom technical, what have you. Both times you said it, I thought you said Kardashians. <laughs> well, they sound, yeah. I, I mean, mean I it did, sounds, they sound very it similar. Sounds yeah. like the, the alien race. There's the, only so many Armenian characters exactly. in pop culture. I, I, the alien race in Star Trek, the Cardassians, sure. who are villains in The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine especially. There's an episode where, I think it's in Deep Space Nine, where a character is being put on trial. I can't remember which. It doesn't matter. Is being put on trial in the Cardassian legal system. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, because it it's still the Federation. Sounds, like, when you're, it sounds like you're saying the Robert Kardashian legal system. Go on. Well, imagine the Kardashian legal system. That'd be pretty bad, too. <laughs> it's probably not that different. And the Federation's like, look, okay, fine. Like, we'll, we'll get him a lawyer. Like, just tell, how does it work? And they're like, no, 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 you don't understand. In our, in our legal system, the trial is just an, an arena for us to yell at you. You're already guilt. Like, the guilt, the guilt has been decided. And the trial is just where we now tell you that you're guilty and why and what's going to happen to you. And the Federation's like, well, come on, surely, is there an objection we can raise? Come on, like, well, what are the maneuvers we can do? They're like, no, 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 like, and so that's over with that's dispensed with and so that's what this is like yeah you know he's like well i'll defend my guys at the trial and they're like yeah sure buddy you you go ahead and do that like that's fine like nothing's nothing's gonna change 
It is a big part of, I think, what makes my brain unravel whenever I watch war movies, as opposed to uh, also, you know, the the many other things like a light breeze that can make my brain unravel. But um, sure. <laughs> that when I watch war movies, I'm like, what are these fucking rules? Who def- decide this fucking <laughs> shit and everyone has to follow them? And then I extrapolate from there and I'm like, wait, but the rules outside of war also make no sense and are so arbitrary. And I'm like, what the fuck are any of us doing? But every time I watch a war movie, I'm like, says you, why do I have to fucking do this? <laughs> like, anytime anyone's commanded to do anything. That certainly would be my reaction to be, you know, to be told, go over the top. I would be like, I, I don't know about that. No. My friend. Mm-hmm. How about no? That doesn't serve my interests in any way. This is why Falstaff is such a great character. Yes. He's like, war? I'm not sure about that. That sounds bad for me. And it's a sensible response. Yeah, I mean, Falstaff's take is also like, well, I know that tents go with war that are filled with food and drink. So I can, you know, I'll be in those. (laughs) Like, if you want me to come to the war, like, I can hang out there maybe. But yeah, that's that'll be the extent of it. It's weird that, like, Falstaff isn't shorthand for having the right opinion, you know? (laughs) You're like this Falstaffian genius who figured it out. This free thinker who didn't get murdered yeah. like all of his friends and who died a lovely, peaceful death of lifestyle reasons. It, it's right. You're just you watch this movie. I, I mean, you know, I think it illustrates this very well. But the idea of just like I have a really smart move. I have this brilliant fucking eight dimensional chess move in my head for how to win this war. Just push a bunch of human beings towards it. Just take a bunch of human lives and just push them all in one direction and hope that ultimately more of our guys are alive than their guys. And then, like, that doesn't work and they're like, well, shrug, I don't know. What a shame. Yeah. I've been on an action movie bender this summer, I guess, because it's summer and, like, that's what you do. And I was watching Die Hard the other day and enjoying or, like, really noticing the fact that the FBI are like, yeah, we're going to lose 25 percent of the hostages. But, like, that's pretty right. good for us. Like, that's fine. And just how it's unusual throughout history to not, you know, see all this as a numbers game. Yes, it is absurd. I mean, they those are my favorite side characters in Die Hard <laughs> because, like, when they show up, it, like... It should be like, oh, great. The feds are here. They've got helicopters and stuff like they'll kick this up to they'll deal with this. And instead they show up and they're like, yeah, let's just fucking do it, man. Let's go guns blazing. And there's that moment where they're in the copter and the older agent is like, this reminds me of Nam. And the other guy's like, I wasn't in Nam, man. I'm too young for that. (laughs) And you're like, oh, they're just idiots. Like they're just completely violence addicted idiots. Yeah. And how the older agent... Like, this wouldn't be real for audiences for many years, but now the older FBI guy is like, for me and many other people, he's the guy from Showgirls. He yes, just is the guy from yes. Showgirls. Yes. So Robert that Downey, also right. helps. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, makes me makes me laugh when he says this reminds me of Nami. And the guy's like, what? <laughs> um. <laughs> I mean, Die Hard is like what this movie would be in a way. If like, cause like the whole premise of Die Hard is like, how much good can like one good guy manage to get done? And in Die Hard, the answer is all of it. And in this movie, the answer is none of it. And aside from that, they're the same. <laughs> so in, in, in 80 years, you know, some progress made.
When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Pads of Glory, I can give you some context, Griff, or do we want to talk about the plot? No, let's take into some context. Give me, give, me, give me some context. I'm a connoisseur for it. And of it. I know you are. So the killing had come out, and even though it wasn't a big hit, it was just, I think, like universally regarded internally, like in the industry, yeah. as like, this is someone to watch, right? Like, this is this is a, this is a filmmaker. A major this is film. a real filmmaker. Yeah. yeah. And so Harris Kubrick Productions, who, you know, Harris, James Harris is Stanley's uh, producer for all these early movies. Um, they get a deal at MGM to write, produce, and direct a film in 40 weeks for a fee of $75,000. That's basically it. Do whatever you want, but that's the budget. That's the right. Like wow. that's the um, that's the fee. That's the timeline. They want to make a war movie because even though they've done Fear and Desire, Kubrick is just still completely fascinated by war. He calls it one of the few remaining situations where men stand up and speak for what they believe to be their principles. He says it's pure drama. So that's an interesting perspective on war. I'm not sure I would agree with that, but I guess I know what he means. That like it's just like so pressurized that environment. Right. I, I don't know that you're like, you're... yeah, like reality TV cohabitation competition shows now. Yes, exactly. That's where your principles come to the fore. People start getting real. No, I think that's what it, it's that it, I think it uh, strips people down to the primal instincts. I think that's sort of what he's getting at. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, and there's this uh, book, Humphrey Cobb's novel, Paths of Glory. Kubrick had read it in high school, found it in his father's office and just it was burned onto his, like he'd never forgotten it. Mm -hmm. He says it's one of the few books he read for pleasure when he was like a teenager. It actually has been made into a play before. Um, so it's, you know, it's like a known thing and there have been attempts at cinematic uh, adaptations. But you know what the problem with Paz is, guys? It's a bummer. It's a huge bummer. <laughs> That's the reason that studios would be like, well, why are we doing this? It has like an unhappy ending and it's like about how bad war is and what idiot generals are. It's like, should we be doing that? I guess. I guess that's what the problem it's is. It's up there with bicycle thieves, I would say. Kubrick saw bicycle thieves and he was like, hold my beer. Yeah. Uh, nobody is interested. They bring in uh, Jim Thompson, who writes, you know, who wrote, uh, wait, what did Killer he write? Inside now I'm, well, no, I know, but like, did, he, he wrote The Killing, right? Yes, he wrote The Killing, right? Yeah. yeah so they, right. They're, they're bringing back Jim Thompson. He, he adapts it. No one is interested except for Kirk Douglas, Kirky. who liked the killing, reads the script, and he says, Stanley, I don't think this movie is ever going to make a nickel, but we have to make it. Aww. So Kirk Douglas is the one guy who's basically like, I guess, got enough clout at this moment that he's like, well, I want to do something interesting. And he reads the script and he's like, like, I can get this made and I'm sure no one wants to make it. So it is kind of impressive. One million dollar budget based on Kirk Douglas's name. Three hundred thousand dollars goes to Kirk Douglas. Correct. He got basically he got a third of the budget. That's yeah. right. But hey, Michael needs tennis lessons. <laughs> right. Michael's backswing sucked at that time. <laughs> no, he did. No, he, yeah, he was always slicing it. Um, 
Uh, at one point, Kirk Douglas is busy and maybe can't do it, and it, they try to get Gregory Peck involved, which also makes sense. Like, he's also pretty logical for a movie like this, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Sort of a a guy with a backbone, right? Like a guy where you're like, I could see him sticking up for who, you know, these guys, right? Well, like, it's so, sense. but it's so much the as the Atticus Finch thing of like, oh, Gregory Peck is the most moral, immovable man. He is the great yes. good of American culture. Whereas there's something about the, the the exact thing that I feel like Kirk Douglas actually shows a lot of restraint in playing against in this movie, but that we carry over as sort of legacy for him of the clenched teeth, the gripping hands, the fucking poster image. It gives this movie an edge where you're like, I know how big this guy can go. I know the histrionics. Whereas Gregory Peck always felt kind of selfless, you know? And he's and, and Gregory Peck is like more conventionally handsome and Kirk Douglas is handsome in his way, but is like has this very weird, intense, angular look. I don't know. What are your yeah, uh, Sarah, what's your Kirk Douglas take? Do you like Kirk Douglas as an <laughs> as an actor? Seems like an yeah. intense human being as an actor. Yeah, I feel like Gregory Peck's screen presence is the sort of like safe daddy feeling where like if you're like a child on a lifeboat with him, he'll like keep you singing songs and like not panic. Whereas if you're on a lifeboat with Kirk Douglas, like you're going to be drinking seagull blood and singing sea shanties. And like, he's going to level with you. Like there is something it's like, I think he's playing like a, an immovably good man, but not a paternal one. Yes. And you're going to be drinking and and carousing as much as you can out there. (laughs) Both ways you learn stuff. You do. You do. (laughs) They're both teachers. Yeah. I think we've, talked about this Griffin we probably talk about it a little more on Spartacus but like you know he's like a new Hollywood star before new Hollywood that's how I've always thought of Kirk Douglas like right yeah he's almost a man out of time right like when you see him in things like this or the bad and the beautiful or ace in the hole or whatever you're like this is there's no one like this in the 50s right like the, this is a harder edge he feels like almost like a 70s actor or he straddles it yeah 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 my my insomnia youtube rabbit hole of this week has been uh watching inside the actor studio and i watched the the harrison ford one last night mm. and you know harrison ford is like so loath to talk about his process and his craft and all that sort of sure. shit. Or to talk at all right right and and like even Lipton is like, we really appreciate you doing this because we know this is not the kind <laughs> of thing you like doing. And at the end of the interview, he like goes in really tight for a handshake with Lipton. It's clear that he's like, thank you. But um, there's a stretch of it that's really interesting. It's sort of what you're talking about, where they talk about the Mosquito Coast, which I think he says is his favorite movie mm. he made. Um, and uh, it, 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 Lipton is trying to sort of not prod him, but push him on the like. You've obviously lived a very lucky life. You're a very wealthy man. You're very famous. You're very successful. You're very respected. Does it ever feel like a burden that you are Harrison Ford? And sometimes when you try to make a movie like Mosquito Coast, people will not let you or they will not accept it. They will reject it because they have such a specific idea in their head of who Harrison Ford is and what he represents. And Harrison Ford in a very unself-pitying way is like, yes, yes, that is (laughs) the thing I fight with. And he said, I have always gotten the sense that you use the fact that you have these big franchises and these blockbusters to single-handedly get these movies made that would not get made otherwise, but you kind of know selflessly 
that you're not really going to get credit for it, that people will struggle with you being seen or wanting to be seen in that way, and the movies will lose money. And he just sort of says, like, I think there's the assumption that when I make a movie like that, I'm hoping it performs like one of my blockbusters. And the reality is I'm making it so that it can be made. And Douglas, like Harrison Ford was kind of trying to keep the Douglas tradition going. But the difference is by the time you get to Harrison Ford already, and obviously things go so much further afield in the decades past that. Yeah, but it's right. You're already the opening weekend is already you're a slave to it or whatever. Right. It's it's bifurcated. Because he's fucking Indiana Jones and he's Han Solo and whatever. And there was this moment where Kirk Douglas could be a guy who could like pick interesting directors, pick thorny material, but work within these major genres of the war picture, the historical epic, the Western, what have you, and make these morally ambiguous movies that still basically could be sold as mainstream to mainstream audiences. Some of them worked hugely. Some of them didn't work. But he was able to constantly try to make the challenging movie rather than being like, I got to make a dumb one to justify making the tricky one, you know? Well, everything you've said, let me now tell you what happened when they started to shoot the movie, Mm. because this feeds into that perfectly, which is that Douglas shows up there in Munich. I think they shot the movie in Germany and he's greeted by Stanley and Jim Thompson. They had rewritten the script and Kirk Douglas says it's a catastrophe. They'd taken this beautiful script and they'd ruined it. They had stupid dialogue. The dialogue he quotes sounds really funny, such as, you've got a big head. You're so sure the sun rises and sets up there in your noggin. You don't even bother to carry matches. I I, I mean, this is all from Kirk Douglas. That's a thinker. (laughs) That's such an overcomplicated (laughs) metaphor. But by the way, that's like the kind of dialogue that like rules in the killing. You understand when they're coming off of like two fucking hard-boiled noirs. Yeah. Of course. Hard-boiled, weird dialogue. Right. But the, the most important change is that a movie suddenly has a happy ending. The general's car arrives screeching to halt the firing squad. He commutes the death sentence. And Douglas calls Stanley and Harris to his room and says, why did you do this? And Stanley Kubrick, which he says, this is how Douglas puts it. He had a very calm way about him. I never heard him raise his voice. I never saw him get excited. He just looked at me with his big wide eyes. And he said, I did it to make a commercial. I want to make money. And Kirk Douglas just flipped out at them and was like, I only wanted to do this because of the script you showed me. We are shooting that script where I'm walking off this picture. And Stanley Kubrick was like, that's fine. And they made the original picture. So this is, you know, yeah. Right. It's fascinating that like, yeah, Kubrick had sort of gotten in his head of like what a Kirk Douglas movie needs to be. And Kirk Douglas was like, I don't want to make Kirk Douglas movies. I want to be Kirk Douglas and use that to make other movies. Yeah, exactly. This reminds me of a story... I love from the production of Titanic where like they were going over time, they were going over budget. Fox sent down somebody to talk to James Cameron and was like, listen, just cut these scenes, like don't shoot them. You'll get back on schedule that way. It'll be great. And James Cameron, according to legend, was like, the only way to change my movie is to fire me. And the only way to fire me is to kill me. (laughs) (laughs) I I believe I've heard that story and I believe it. I believe it 100 (laughs) percent. I'm just staring someone down and being like, do you have a gun? (laughs) That's the only way you're going to make this happen. I have a tough neck, so you're not going to be able to strangle me. Even a knife will will bend. (laughs) The thing is, that's interesting, and I feel like our researcher, JJ, has found this in a bunch of these dossiers, a bunch of the research for these movies, like even the later ones. Stanley Kubrick always seems more concerned about making films that are commercial and successful 
than making films that are like he doesn't care about critics respect that much no he's not like oh my god i have to please that you know like he seems a lot more concerned with like well i want it to be a hit because then i can make more movies like yeah, it's interesting because it was it felt like that was the most important thing to him, but in a weirdly practical way of like, if the movie bombs, then it's over. And I think more than that, that he knew he had such a particular way of making movies was so demanding that the moment those films stopped being profitable, it's it's sort of the Cameron thing of like, what's a worse fate for him than not being able to make a movie is not being able to make a movie the way he wants to. Not being able to demand that level of control, that scale, those resources, that time. And the only way he keeps justifying that is if the last thing worked. Yeah. But yeah, it seemed to not give a shit about critics or awards at all. Uh, no, not really. No. Yeah. Not someone who really cared about the Oscar or whatever. They shoot it in Germany, in Munich. Uh, Kubrick's marriage to Ruth Sabatka mm-hmm. is on the rocks and he meets... Christiane uh, Suzanne Harlan, uh, who is the singer at the end of the film. Mm-hmm. At the end oh, of Pads wow. Of Glory. I don't think I'd put that together. Uh, yep. Who he marries, and they are married until he dies. So they are married for 30 plus years. That is his, you know, his longtime companion. And it's an incredible ending. The ending of this movie is incredible. I mean, yes. it's so yes. sort of unexpected yeah. and, and amazing. And so that that whole like divorce and then kindling of a new romance plays out in the background of him making Paths of Glory. And then, you know, a lot of the other stories from the set of this movie, I don't know if it's going to shock you, Griffin, is about Stanley Kubrick making actors do lots of take to their increasing frustration. Mm, Have you heard yes, about this? Yes, yes. I've, I've read I've read about this a few times now. I'm not dragging JJ. I know, like, this is what always comes up. He's like, you know, whatever people recollect, like, what was it like to work with Stanley Kubrick? They're always like, really serious, played a lot of chess, kind of cold behind the eyes, lots of takes. (laughs) Like, you know, that's what always comes up. Yes. So, yeah, Paz of Glory. Let's let's talk about it. It's a a great war film. It's the great World War I film. I don't think there's any disputing that, right? Like, what would its competition be? Like, all quiet on the Western front. I can't even think of another film. Yeah. Well, that one. I haven't seen that one. Yeah. I'm out. I, I haven't seen it either. Have you seen it, David? I have. Yes. It's very good. Uh, and I feel like that is sort of, that is, it's, it's obviously, it's from like 1930, right? It's, it's, uh, you know, a pre-code movie. Uh, that, that, it's just sort of the definitive, like, here is a fairly unsanitized Hollywood vision of what, like you know how tough it was doing you know in world war one it's it's not jingoistic or sanded down it's 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 a it's a really intense sad movie uh and it's good it's good it's it's like you know it's good <laughs> i'm a film critic professional film critic <laughs> I, I keep pointing as if that's gonna help it's good me saying it's good it's very good david gives it one point uh one point i just think then i think of things like the lost city of zed or what you know, movies that have World War One sequences that sure. are very impactful, but but are not entirely about the war. Like it's more like the aesthetics of the trenches and the gas attacks and all that. I guess like 1917, you know, became. Well, look, I mean, I I thought about 1917 a lot watching this movie just because the amount of trenchy shit, right? Like that that's the most trenchy movie we've had in recent history. But the one, the one whistleblowing sequence with Douglas for me is so much more harrowing and tense than anything in 1917, 
which is all about, oh, it's fucking unrelenting, one shot, doesn't right. end, you're stuck there with him. Yeah. And he's not doing any cinematic trickery of that style. It's a very unfussy, he's just sort of tracking with him, you know, at a relative speed. But there's something about, and, and, and with cuts, like, but uh, it, it's somehow the, the t- way the tension builds in that you feel, mm-hmm. at least for me, I felt a greater sense of, without trying to put you in a sort of you are there place, um, oh, th- how, how the fuck do you get out of this? Right, right. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You, you just hope to survive, right? You just hope your number doesn't come up. Yeah, I don't yeah. know how else to think about it. Yeah, no, truly, you just fucking walk in with a whistle just going like, look, I just gotta, how many more steps do I have to take? All I have to do is avoid 35 more bullets and I'm good. Do you guys have any uh, relatives that fought in wars? Uh, my grandfather fought in World War II. Mm-hmm. Might as well. Yeah. My grandfather, I think, organized the, the USO shows in World War II. <laughs> That's such a Griffin human <laughs> grandfather know, right? thing. Yep. Oh, my God. Wait, yep. that's he incredible. He greatly fought in World War II, and then you, you cut to this guy being like, all right, so you're going to open, and this guy's going to middle, and uh, you know, like, and it's a rough crowd out there tonight. Hey, Bob Hope was very rude behind the scenes. That was a tough gig, all right? You got PTSD from that. The wildest thing about it is my grandfather absolutely looked like someone who personally strangled 50 people to death on the front lines <laughs> in the war. My grandfather was like, was looked like fucking Bob Hope as like a thug, was like a big stocky guy with like a mean face. And then when I say, oh, he organized USO shows, you're like, oh, it was just Griffin in the war. And I was like, no, my grandfather like looked like an angry man. Uh, I don't, you know, like, I don't know about World War One. I. I think my my guess is that for my dad's, like, my dad's dad was too old to fight in World War Two. My dad was born during World War Two. And so my guess is like there was a similar generational thing where like maybe but I don't I don't know about my father's side of the family and then my mom's side of the family during World War One they were like you know penniless immigrants or whatever so I don't you know I don't so I don't have any World War One st- uh, family stories for sure for sure I don't know that I found out my family it's like pretty much up until well just not the Vietnam but like Korean all the way back. Um, they were even revolutionary war. They, yeah, served in all these wars. And it's just like, I, well, you got one of those American families that goes all the way to the revolutionary, right? You're all the way back. Well, there's, a, there's the house, the house in New Jersey that has been in your family for like six generations, right? Yeah. It's a house in New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, okay. What are you going to do with that? <laughs> a lot. Barry oh, jeans. jeans. That's true. I think my, my future invention is going to be a time travel app where you can like go back in time to visit your relatives and pressure them into buying real estate and just yeah. be like, here's 20 bucks, buy a bunch of acres. I'll check in on it later. <laughs> you don't know what the East Village is. Just trust me. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I talk about this all the time. The movie Brooklyn, where like they're like, we're going to get out of here. We're going to sell this Brooklyn Heights brownstone. Disgusting. And move to Long Island. And I'm like, no, hold on to it. Oh, my God. That thing is a gem. You're going to get millions. Also, but like those stories you always hear about like an artist who had like a fucking studio in Soho or like Chinatown in the 70s or the 80s. And the landlord's like, I don't know. You want to buy this whole building? What do you got in your pockets right now? 
I don't, I, don't, I can't be right. bothered with this thing. <laughs> it's a hassle owning it. You yeah. might as well take it. But yeah, I just asked because it's like World War Two, World War One. They seem justified. It makes sense why why our relatives did this heroic, honorable thing. But then we've been discussing throughout this episode. Why would anyone ever fight in a war? Especially the the way this movie presents war as just like the sort of nasty side of it. The like, I don't know, probability, the math, the like, the um, coldness of it all. I don't know. <laughs> like growing up as I was always like, I don't know. I don't get it. I'm not a boy, so I won't be drafted. So I don't have to make peace with it at any time. Not that there's been a lot of drafting in our, in our lifetimes. Um, but yeah, no, I, I never, something I've never gotten is like the, like the initial appeal of it, you know, the like first 20 minutes of born on the 4th of July or whatever, where it's like, where you're like, I'm going to go to war and I'm going to fight and I'm going to have adventures and I'm going to distinguish myself. And then you get there and you see what it actually is. And I'm curious about like, I guess I've like never understood what illusions do people have going into it specifically as infantry. It's like, like you must know that the odds are that you will die horribly almost immediately. And, and so like, what is the and like knowing that on some intellectual level, like what do you think will happen to you that allows you to actually do it? Right. Why will you be why will you be invincible for whatever? I mean, I do think from what I studied just in World War One, I, I feel like it's widely, you know, like uh, covered that like everyone going into that was like, this is going to be fucking six months flat. Like we are going to be in and out. Like just like with COVID, just a bunch of celebrities sing a song six weeks playing Monopoly. Right. We're going to, we're fine. Yeah. Everyone in Germany and Britain, especially was just like, come on boys, let's all sign up. We're going to, Oh, we are. They are telling me that these guys basically just have pickles in their hands. We are going to wipe them out and it's going to be great. And we come home and we're heroes. And then instead Everyone's like, yo, everyone seems to have machine guns and tanks all of a sudden. We got to dig holes and really hunker down. This sucks. And like, you know, it's this. Now uh, I'm just like imagining like Fatty Arbuckle making like the Nickelodeon version of the Imagine <laughs> video. Calling in like Rudolph Valentino. <laughs> and and you, there's no sound. They're just right. like all those guys were there. They're like, I'm sure they sound great. So. <laughs> And, uh, you know, obviously World War II is different because World War II is like there's this yeah. global evil we have to confront. World War I, everything I ever studied about it in, in school. And in school, basically, I was taught about the origins of World War I. And then you'd, we jumped right to afterwards. Like, they were like, we're yeah. not going to actually teach you about the war. It's too complicated and boring at the same time. Like, right. that's not for high schoolers. We'll just, so we'll just do origins. You know, we'll, you'll learn about France, Ferdinand and all that. And then we're going to do the Treaty of Versailles and all that. Like, you know, and we're then... We go right to World War II, we, you know, the Depression and all that. Um, but yeah. Yeah, it's like when you watch Titanic at your grandma's house and you finish the first tape and you're like, and then what? And you're like, and, and then they got safely to their destination, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then, and, yep, it arrived and, uh, and everyone got off uh, in the normal way, down the stairs and so on and so forth. So it was all, great. All I got was this lousy T-shirt. <laughs> Uh, no, it's a, it's a, it's a I, look. I like Full Metal Jacket more than you, David. Although we haven't gotten to that episode yet, I'm curious to rewatch it. But it is the thing that I think Full Metal Jacket does particularly well is you sort of understand the way these systems are built to hype these young men up 
into not only is this a noble thing to do, but like you're going to come out of this being so fucking powerful and badass, you know? And the imaginary world of, of boot camp. Where, right. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. Learn to learn to put your gun together. Learn to march. Yeah. Right. And then like the reality of it being just this like hell. All the jelly donuts you want. <laughs> right. Right. But it, it's this idea, not just like I mean, the way in our society, obviously, we like pay. We we're told to pay such reverence to soldiers, you know, uh, without necessarily properly supporting mm-hmm. them. But but also the sort of idea of like this is going to turn you into such a high functioning person. You know, that that's so often I mean, we're talking in modern terms, the military is this is your pathway if you can't afford college and you don't have a career path and you don't know what your thing is and you're going to come out of here and you're going to be able to do anything, you know, and I do think you talk about why these people show up and they they get to war and they're just like, I'm going to fucking win this. I'm going to be a hero. It, it's because, yeah, it, it, there's a whole system built up for these kinds of things. I mean, what this movie is so good at depicting is when the sort of the the illusion falls apart for these people, you know, when when the sort of uh, narrative that they've been sold starts to dissipate and people start actually critically viewing the things around them and questioning the orders and all of that. Paths of Glory, this movie is about a general who wants his soldiers to take over a position called the Antil. His French soldiers, they're all French. Everyone in this movie, of course, is French, and it's very obvious that they're French. Um, that's a joke about the accents. Um, they're saying oh, ho, ho, the whole time. It's great. They, they hated this movie in France. It's funny to read just like how vicious the fucking reviews were, and mostly because of that. They were just like, he's taken so much care and effort to replicate all the details. And it's all American actors making no effort to seem French. But it wouldn't, I mean, this is like such a device, like everybody attacks us differently, but like it's, I don't know. I think just having them all sound sort of generically American is the least obtrusive thing you can do. But I agree. I agree. I think it's way better than watching Kirk Douglas or whoever, you know, try to, you know. Do a pan-European accent sounding like Christopher Lambert and Highlander. <laughs> right. Because I think when I see that happen, it makes even less sense to me where I'm like, why are they speaking English with French accents? Like, I, I pretty much think there are two ways to go about this. There's the Inglorious Bastards way where you're just like, everyone's actually going to speak the language they would speak. And I will cast actors of that nationality for the roles. And very few people are given the creative and artistic freedom at that budget scale to get away with doing that. And otherwise, I think pretty much always the best approach is actors, bring your own accent. We just are going to tell you where they're supposed to be from and everyone just do your thing. I mean, like, it's the huge problem with Valkyrie. I mean, that's not like going to that movie is just okay anyway. But, you know, everyone is just using their accents in that movie. See, I kind of like it in Valkyrie. I don't like it in Valkyrie because I don't know why Cruz is American and everyone else is British. Everyone should be British. Like British people playing Nazis. That's fine. That that happened for decades. That's sure. how they, you know, that that's cinematically essentially how Americans represent Nazis on screen. But then to have Tom Cruise in there makes it odd. Like it, <laughs> anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, the weirdest approach, of course, is what Oliver Stone did with Alexander, where he was like, uh, the Macedonians will speak in Irish accents. <laughs> that's why Colin Farrell. <laughs> 
can use his natural accent, but then I will make Val Kilmer put on a bizarre Irish accent. Right. And then everyone else will speak in English accents, except for Angelina Jolie, who will do like a Russian accent. And you're like, but none of these people, wait, wait a second. You know, like, you're like, you can't just like, do, you know, say that Irish means this. Like, it doesn't, anyway. You know what I want to see? I'm sorry I'm like dragging us further on this tangent, but like. No, please. We love please. tangents. Hollywood loves doing Boston accents so much. I do feel like we backed off it Boston slightly in the movie. past couple years. Yes. Yeah. Like, let's do the, you know, the Trojan army, but they all sound like they're in The Departed. <laughs> <laughs> But that's right. That's what it is. You're doing some ancient war and half the people talk one way, but you have all the Spartans or Boston, all the Trojans, whatever. You you pick a country. You you remake Paths of Glory with Mark Wahlberg and everyone else has to do a reverse Wahlberg, yes. reverse engineered Wahlberg accent. That's what the people want. <laughs> well, they're all French and uh, General Brulard, who is a sort of friendly fellow, friendly kind of, you know, what uh, older guy with a mustache is like, can you please take the anthill? And this guy, General Miro, who's got like a big scar and is kind of scary looking, is like, well, I don't want to do that. Like, that's fucking impossible. <laughs> and Brulard's like, yeah, but you could get like a promotion out of it. And he's like, all right, well, we'll just do it. <laughs> and that's that's the best part to me is it's not like, OK, well, I'm going to figure out how we'll do it. He's just like, yeah, OK, well, I'll just go tell them to do it and they better fucking do it because otherwise I'll be embarrassed. Right, like he doesn't, he doesn't really have any more, uh, any more to offer them. It's the weird, like corporate ladder thing of uh, right. of war, uh, where like all of these people fought at some point, right? Sure, sure. and have now yeah. been promoted to the cushy office where they're not at risk anymore. And immediately, when you get the security of the four walls around you you no longer have any empathy for the people who are in the position that you just escaped. Right. I did it. How hard could this be? And it's like, well, you didn't fucking live in a trench like we do. Yeah. Right. How many people do I have to throw at this problem to increase my sense of security in my current position or even rise to a higher position? Um, George McCready, who is McCready, McCready, uh, who is the the scar gentleman, uh, as you were saying, Miro. Uh, he, this this is a real scar that he had. I was trying to get a sense of this because I was looking up other uh, films of him and headshots, and and uh, it feels like in other films they tried to downplay it and cover it up a little bit, and in this film they embellished it. But it is basically a real scar that size that I think they made a make look a little more intense. That he got like driving in college. <laughs> he like got into like a car accident as like a frat boy. But it makes him. It so looks like a dueling scar, right? Exactly. It's like fucking perfect for this. And this fucking guy owned an art gallery with Vincent Price. He and Vincent Price were best friends. <laughs> and the two of them in Beverly Hills owned an art gallery that was half them being like, well, this is like fun. We have like a place to hang out rather than buy a bar. Let's buy an art gallery. But they also were yeah. like big supporters of like up and coming young artists. And their place was like this fucking celebrity hotspot to buy art where like fucking Greta Garbo would come out of her cave that she was living in seclusion to look at the fucking paintings that McCready and Price had on display. Could you just imagine walking into an art gallery and hearing those two voices talking to each other? 
and it was just these two actors with their pencil fin mustaches and slicked back hair and fucking monster voices. You're looking at modern art in Beverly Hills. And then what if you're in the like weird celebrity business district and you're like, okay, this is great. This is really great stuff out of my price range. I'm going to go buy some socks from Peter Lorre now. Yes, yes. <laughs> you're right. I'm going to Lorre's Knitting Emporium. <laughs> Yes, I've been working on some scarves. He's just like behind the behind the thing with two needles. I don't know. This guy also, George George McCready, the guy you're talking, about, has yeah. just a fabulous Wikipedia picture. Griffin, are you seeing this thing? It's it's unbelievable. Yes, yes. He's up. in. It's 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 a headshot from this movie called Johnny Allegro, which is a great movie. Yeah, uh, title like that's a that's a great title. Some George Raff gangster movie. And he just looks, he looks very patrician, but he looks great. He's got this bow tie and this kind of tweed jacket. He looks great. I, this wow. is the, the IMDb trivia fact from Victoria Price, Vincent Price's daughter. They opened their gallery. It was called The Little Gallery. They opened it in 1943. Their customers included Charles Lawton, Tallulah Bankhead, Barbara Hutton, Fanny Bryce, Catherine Hepburn, and Greta Garbo. I know they probably weren't all there at the same time, but I just like to imagine an opening cocktail hour with those fucking voices like that's like that sounds so like delightful. it sounds like a premise for like a fucking snl sketch where everyone gets yes. to show off the impression they have in their back pocket i mean i all look i i also love adolphe menjou the guy playing the the gen the top general guy yes the sort of you know frenchy guy who is another absolute legend like he was in uh the shake like the, the old rudolph valentino movie like he was not in a star is born he's nominated for an oscar for the front page he looks like kind of like serious peter sellers is that crazy yeah, for yeah, me to no, say no that's yes that's fair yes you know kind of like dramatic peter sellers with a with a stash and all that he, he looks like what how peter sellers tries to make himself look Apparently, Salvador Dali was a big fan of his and uh, declared that he had one of the best mustaches. So and that's from a mustache guy. Yeah, that's a huge compliment. He was also a total uh, politically. He was a a huge jerk who was very Republican and was very fond of the House Committee on American Activities. I do. I do. Should acknowledge that he was uh, anti polio vax. He also he he. He's the one who tore it up with with Kubrick the most because I guess okay. he's probably the biggest veteran. Uh, where Kubrick at one point was like, "All right, take forty two guys," and he was like, "You don't know what you're doing. You're twenty nine years old. Like you don't know how to direct actors." And Kubrick listened to him and then just said quietly, "It isn't right, and we're going to keep doing it until it is right, and we'll get it right because you guys are good." Where's the one I I found here? Uh, he he did seventeen takes, Manju, and then he said that was my best reading. I think we can break for lunch now. Kubrick said he wanted another take. Menju went into like, he fucking tazzed out, right? Was yelling at everyone, like full Christian Bale onset breakdown. And then he just let him stop. And then Kubrick said, all right, let's try the scene once more. <laughs> he's just a stone wall. Right, even right. though he's like a baby. Just yeah. ice cold. And Manju went like, okay. And it just did it again. Like he would just fucking outplay people just by being unwavering. I think the casting of that guy is fantastic because he is likable. Like yeah. you are genuinely kind of charmed by him. He's this avuncular fella and he's just, he's maybe not just as evil as Moreau, but he's 
you know, it, but this benign evil person, right? Like he's he's like he seems more sane than Moreau, which makes him more evil at this point. Yeah, because right. Moreau just seems to be fully losing it, accountable to no one. Right. Moreau is so lost in his own like vanity of like, I cannot be proven to be, I can't be embarrassed by that. Yeah, this. he's our Trump. He's like, let's fire on our own, you know, yeah. <laughs> right, right. I mean, that whole, so that's the whole sequence that plays out in the movie, obviously, is they try, you know, uh, General, uh, sorry, uh, Colonel Dax, who is Kirk Douglas, is like, we're just going to die if you do that, like, we, if you send us up there. And he's like, well, jolly good, you know, pat on the back. It's that it's that way. It's about east, southeast from here. So, you know, give it a shot. Think of England uh, and or they, France or wherever we're from. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, and the attack on the anthill is a complete failure. And Moreau uh, orders his guys to open fire on his own troops to force more of them onto the battlefield. And right. I mean, that's the main thing that happens. There's the there's the sort of side plot about the nighttime mission mm-hmm. that goes wrong. But the main thing is just Moreau losing it over them not following his orders. And he's like, great, we'll just court-martial them all for cowardice. And the insane decision is made to try three men as sort of as a proxy for everybody. Right, right? to make an one, example one out of them. Company. Yeah. And that is mostly what this movie is about. The main cinematic, like, filmmaking conceit of this movie, which is very simple... Uh, but just executed so well is like in that whole opening office sequence, you Kubrick's doing what later kind of becomes his definitive style of this sort of icy remove super wide shot, deep focus, focusing on the silence. You know, the only other ambient noise you hear is the echo of the people's voices in these rooms and, you know, such clarity in the details of every fucking bauble on their walls, on their desks. And then when you go into war, it is the most claustrophobic thing. Mm. It is this like constant barrage of noise, the drums and the gunshots and whatever. And the disparity between the people making these decisions and the people who are forced to actually live through them. Uh, you know, the remove uh, that, that the, the people in the offices have away from the people who are on the battlefields. And even, I mean, I just think he's so deliberate about when you get to the execution at the end, not to jump ahead, he shoots it with the same sort of intensity and claustrophobia of when they are on the battlefield or when they're in the trenches, even though they are outdoors. And even something like the the jail cell where they're being kept before the execution, he shoots more like one of the general's offices because there is actually a sense of security there, even though they know their death is imminent to like, well, but they're safe from the fucking shooting, at least until they are marched out and shot. But I, I just think the use of sound in this movie is so smart. And the sort of, the, the Kubrickian control of the language of, it, it's so much about the spaces and the energy of the spaces and the difference between where, where you are safe and secure and have the most power, you know? Even just the, the, the calm with which this whole opening dialogue scene plays out. How casually they get to talk about everything that when you first cut into the trenches, and you're introduced to Kirk Douglas, a man who never, ever seemed chill, you know, whose face is tense. <laughs> I think that the sets are doing such an incredible amount of work here. I was noticing that just watching this again for today. And yeah, just how there's like one of the questions that I feel like anyone making a movie should ask themselves is like, why is this a movie? Why is this not a play or a book? But like, the the amount of work I think 
that, and this is what seems one of the things that seems so smart to me where it's like, you can like, if you're doing any creative project, you can like feel like you're really getting something done because you're doing it in a very laborious way. And possibly many, many takes is one way of doing that, arguably. But like, just, I feel like it takes a lot of creative security to let something be easy for you and just like the amount of work that those interiors do in the opening minutes for the audience of just like you just know in your bones you're like these people have no idea what they're talking about because how could you if you're surrounded by beautiful rooms and beautiful things and like no part of you is even thinking about whether this gash on your arm is going to get infected any second now yeah it's incredible that it it actually as as sort of banal as that those opening scenes are it's building tension because you just know the second he actually cuts into the battle. Yeah. Yeah. It's immediately going to feel so absurd. Yeah. It's like the opening of any horror movie where the right. family's having a great vacation. Right. And you're like, this is like, gonna I'm last. so stressed out by this great vacation. Right. And if you're setting this as one end of, of the polar extreme, you know? God, it is so crazy, though. Why did they do this? Why it's so dumb. doing this shit, man. It's really dumb. It is the dumbest. It's the dumbest war of all time. Like I think, I think any military expert so probably agrees. It's like, in, in, yeah, well, right, exactly. But in, in okay, terms so of like, we're solving this, right? We're doing it, guys. We're we are. It. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. <laughs> uh, you know, in terms of amount of people dead versus like goals achieved, yes. <laughs> it's like the disparity. Even if you think any goal achieved in war is bad, like this one is really like no goals, so many dead. Um, no, but yeah, the, I was just I was just literally watching a clip of Paths of Glory, like just to remind, those those shots of him stalking through the trenches with all the guys lined on either side, and they just all look so miserable. And then like there are moments where he sort of goes into maybe goes under a bridge or something and it gets really dark for mm-hmm. a second. That's, that's the Kubrick shit where you're like, you know, this is, it's not just attention to detail and it's not just recreating something fairly accurately, like the experience of it, but just it's, it's so like chillingly awfully atmospheric. It's so cool in, you know, not cool. Cool is the wrong word. Uh, yeah. Upsetting. Yes, yes, yes. It it's the it, I mean this is the movie where he really starts to develop the understanding of how I can use cinematic technique to make the audience feel a very specific thing very viscerally. You know, which so often with Kubrick is how do I make them feel uncomfortable? How do I make audiences miserable? Yeah. But then of course the whole movie is these general guys being like, "I guy, you guys are really embarrassed me up there." And I'm like, did you just watch what they like? Are you kidding me? Like, they, the worst thing that could ever happen to you just happened to all these guys. And the general's like, I'm going to have to put you on trial. I mean, I, and we're going to have to talk about this. And just, just the, the extreme absurdism of, of them being like, could I say something in my defense maybe? And they're like, no, no, I don't think so. It's pretty obvious. You got, you know, that, that it's, it, it makes it, uh, I, I don't know. It does make all that like very gentle dialogue. It's toxic power dynamics. Okay. Like, I'm sorry. I've got to say it. It's very toxic. Can I say it? Yeah, you're right. It's very toxic. War is toxic. What they're doing is very, war is toxic. Very problematic. It's yeah, so problematic. Sure. Sir, you, I mean, you were saying that this was like your Kubrick movie. This is the one that really like has stuck with you in your life. What, what is your relationship to war movies in general? Like, hmm. do you feel like, 
Because I, I mean, I think David is more interested in war films than I am, and I struggle with them just because of the amount of panic they give me. That's a good question. I mean, it, the first thing that makes me think of is I remember going on a trip with my friend and her family when I was 13, and we were like, we were on a boat, but it was like a houseboat boat that you can move around a lake, and it had a little TV and VCR and like the sort of like standard cottage selection of VHS tapes. So I remember watching Thelma and Louise and uh, Finding Private Ryan, which I almost just call Goodwill Hunting, but that's not, no, Saving Private Saving Ryan. Private. See, I can't Saving even remember Private what it's Ryan. called. It made a they, huge impression They do on find me. him. My yeah. favorite movie. They do find him. <laughs> they did, also, they should have done Saving Goodwill Hunting, the Damon verse. Yes. And, and Saving Bobby Fisher and, yes. yeah, all of it. Um, and... I remember just like not knowing how to find a way into that movie. Um, and I have not attempted to watch it again since I was 13 or however old I was at the time. But yeah, and just that being my assumption about how war movies are going to go, that it's like going to be like, I think that movie's depiction of D-Day, right? That's in there. Yes. I have a very great grasp of what's in this movie. And just this sort of, and it's funny because I love horror movies and I actually... Last night was watching Predator because I'm doing my homework before watching Prey, the Predator prequel, I guess. It was a very PR heavy sentence. Um, <laughs> Prey, the Predator prequel, yes. That's right. <laughs> that should have been the full title. And I feel like Predator is like as close as I get to a war movie where it's like these people are, you know, they're doing special ops. There's like a military element to it right. but essentially it's like a finite number of people at a remote location dealing with a scary thing like that's what i love to see half of the movies i watch boil down to that in some capacity and war movies i feel like like i don't consciously seek them out i think war itself is like feels so complicated to think about and just the sort of you know what we've been touching on in this whole conversation of like that in America, we have a culture of like extreme reverence for people who are veterans of combat, but also this like sense of like, obviously, it's very like we revere you because we would never dream of asking you to stop doing that. And that's what you get in exchange. And like, that's a lot of it's a complicated ethical situation to think through in entertainment, I guess. And it's just less complicated if it's like Arnold versus a guy who's like clearly a dick even for his planet. That's what I want to see. <laughs> but that's the thing, like Predator, I think of as more of a combat movie than a war movie, you know? And like Commando is the same. And it's the reason why the two Top Gun movies are so wildly successful because they sort of abstract the war so much that you're like, this is combat. Right. Or they're like peacetime play acting right or something. right this is Sorry. just about fighting you don't have to think about the larger structures at play you don't have to think about what the greater goals are it's about like how many it, it's about skirmishes it's like playing asteroid you know it's like how many things do i have to shoot down or whatever and, and i do feel like i mean the fact that you bring up to horror movies but like as a child uh even probably into my teen years when i would go see a horror movie it would feel to me like th those moments before going on a roller coaster where it's like, I'm miserable right now. I'm shitting my pants. I hate this. I don't want to do it. And then when you're on it, it's simultaneously punishing and thrilling. And then I feel good when it's done, right? 
And then now I think I enjoy horror movies pretty thoroughly without that tension, without that fear, the anticipatory dread. But I do feel that way watching war movies where I'm like, God, I don't want to fucking watch this. Even if I know this is good, I don't want to fucking watch this. And the whole time I'm watching it, it's driving me insane. And then when it's done, I'm like, I'm very glad I watched that, which is like how I feel about this. Saving Private Ryan, which is a movie I had avoided my entire life until we had to cover it for the podcast. It took me six hours to finish watching it. And then I was like, well, I love this movie. This movie's a masterpiece. I'll buy it on fucking Steelbook. I will never watch it again. Because I was like, oh, I'll watch. it's a great, great film. I want to study this. I want to watch this again sometime. And it's like, I fucking can't. I can't. Not just the immediacy of the combat, because yeah, my, it's a great steal. It's a great fucking steal. I'm happy to have it on the shelf. But I, I remember I put that movie on and Forky was like, this is so sad. And I was like, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I've yeah. seen it 50 times. Yeah. <laughs> it is sad. Very sad. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Girl. No, I'm I just I, I, I spiral out on those things. And I, I feel like this is a movie that is kind of explicitly about that, which is perhaps why I, I was going to say enjoy it more, but enjoy it isn't the word. I do think this is a great movie. But I am, I'm, I am just clenching the armrest the entire time, equally in the battlefield sequences and in the fucking conversation dialogue scenes. I guess I just love, there's like a certain gratification to seeing a movie that's like, yeah, death is horrible, right? And like dying in combat is also really bad and being executed by your own side for basically no reason is even worse. And we're not going to console you. With anything. That's just it. Like, I've also been on a Rennie Harlan kick and I've been noticing how there's at least two of his movies, Deep Blue Sea and Cliffhanger, where someone who's about to die horribly says, I don't want to die. I assume so the audience doesn't think like, well, maybe they were cool with that happening. <laughs> and just like, maybe they're kind of like, yeah, know, I got to go sometime. Also, right. Tragic might irony. Well be the super shark. My, my greatest dream <laughs> in life is to not die. <laughs> I hope it never happens. Oh, fuck, the guy that. just died. Right, oh, it's like shit. fucking Scoey and McBain talking about wanting to retire to his boat. My dream, to keep living. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say a couple of things. One, a Predator, one thing I love about Predator, though, it, it is somewhat of a satire, like so many post-Vietnam movies, right? Where it's like, these guys are like, well, we could deal with this problem. We have such big guns. Like, surely all of our big guns will kill the predator. And then obviously like they don't know how to handle someone who actually knows how to use their, the environment against them. Um, and then they eventually figure it out, but you know, like until they do a lot of bushcraft, Arnold got the merit badge for that. (laughs) Exactly. Eventually, eventually, you know, they get their noggins and gear saving private Ryan, I think is an incredible parallel to paths of glory because it's also about a very absurd mission in that it's like, Hey guys, you got to go get this one guy in World War II because his brothers died. And everyone in the movie is like, well, we're, we're, we're all struggling here. <laughs> you know, like this, like, <laughs> it's not like this doesn't suck for me, what this guy's brothers did. So like I have to, and they're like, I don't know, man, we're drawing a line somewhere and you're going to go get we this can't, guy. We can't go back to his mom's front porch a fourth time and give her bad news again. Yeah, it's too fucked up. And in Saving Private Ryan, of course, there is... There is like this, because it's a Spielberg movie partly, but also because it's a World War II movie, there's this sort of like stirring good to it, even though it is a movie about the absolute absurdity of like, how do we define heroism in these circumstances? And then Paths of Glory is World War I. So it's like, 
yeah, we did that for no good reason. We accomplished nothing. And one of you has to, three of you have to die because we're embarrassed about it, I guess. Like, because, because (laughs) on, in retrospect, it was even stupider. (laughs) Well, they're like, they're in, in an interesting way. They're kind of inverse movies because saving private Ryan is like, we need to follow through on this mission. A, because it's a symbolic victory. And B, because the the absurd awfulness of this thing has gotten so macro that at least there's kind of a micro. We can we can apply a micro empathy to one person who is outside of this thing and go, wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have to give her bad news again? Whereas this movie is just like, how am I supposed to fucking explain this to my boss? Someone has to fucking take the fall for this. <laughs> and And then, of course, like, the brilliance of having it's like okay well three of you have got to get put on trial and so it's like well let's pick this one guy who is no good he's played by timothy carey and it's like the most extreme man who's ever existed (laughs) right this guy's just obviously no good we'll pick this guy then let's pick this second guy who kind of knows that i you know about the fuck up with this scouting mission we'll try and get him off the board two two bird one stone um, fuck up. He shot uh, his fellow soldier. I would I would label it yes, a little bit good. stronger than a fuck up. Okay, it was a snafu. Okay, you're right. <laughs> right. It was a snafu. It was very perhaps a, it was a very rhubarb. <laughs> um, and then they're like third guy. And they're like, oh, I don't know. Pick the third guy randomly. And they're like, okay, we picked. Uh, uh it looks like he's a war hero who's been decorated a bunch. And they're like, uh, okay, <laughs> fine. We didn't want trial to. And so then there's that moment where Kirk Douglas is like. Hey, can I point out that this guy like is an absolutely like decorated hero? And they're like, shut up, sit down. We're, we're trying to get through this. We got lunch to get to. Like, don't, you know, come on. Don't even bring that up. That's like the most legally accurate moment in any movie. Just like, can I say something highly relevant and exculpatory? And they're like, no. <laughs> no, no, it's thank you. We job. don't want to hear it. Yes. Move it along. We should also mention that uh, this is Kubrick and Tim Carey's second movie together and very much uh, their last. Fully their last. Yes. Kubrick uh, <laughs> fired. This is where Kubrick is fully sick of him. Right. After this he one. like fired Tim Despite Carey. Despite his incredible face. Incre- an incredible performance. I think he's amazing in yes. this. He's really good. Yeah. He's really so good. fucking captivating. But um, they essentially fired him the moment his final close up was done. And they were like, everything <laughs> yeah. else we can get done with a double. Let's just prioritize the things that are on his face. And then we'll turn some guy. We'll get a fucking dentist. The, the cape to Bella Lugosi him. But but one of the things, I mean, like Tim Carey, just every take wanted to do something different. So continuity was a fucking nightmare. And I think he was so sort of like uh, uh, primal and behavioral and how he worked that he drove all the other actors up the wall. But during the making of this film, he fakes his own kidnapping. He did. He did. And look, look, Griff, you don't like to, you know, he's trying to get some publicity going. What's wrong with it's that? It's the okay? easiest way to juice up your IMDb star meter numbers. We all know this. And it works out great for everyone who's done it. He got himself tied up and gagged and put on the road in Munich. And the cops found him and were like, what's up with you? And he was like, I was kidnapped. And they were like, okay. And it became like a news story. And he just fucking made it up. Right, like New York Times front page story. Yeah. Can you just imagine how fucking angry Kubrick was where it's just like, first of all, I can't get this guy to do what I want. And now also, he's fucking kidnapping himself. 
He's making his own side movies. I'm equally stressed out when he is on and off set. So, yes, as you said, they fired him uh, when the last scene that his face would be in was filmed. Uh, Yeah, they fired him the next day. Uh, Also, the guy who played the priest, Emily, uh, sorry, Emile Mayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, really hated Timothy Carey because in the death scene, which is so powerful, where he's saying, I don't want to die, you know, and he's being dragged, uh, Timothy Carey would do things like bite his arm and like, you know, wrestle around and like, you know, ha- harass him essentially. Uh, and the guy playing the priest really hated it. But uh, but I guess Timothy Carey was like, hey, it's acting. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I kind of I kind of can't argue with the results as much as I am kind of happy I never had to hang with this guy. Uh, he's got a great face. So the other guys are a little more anonymous, right? I don't know. Uh, Joe Turkle, who, well, right, who people then? would know from many Kubrick movies. Becomes the uh, bartender in The Shining, but also he's Tyrell right. and Blade Runner. Yeah, I mean, there's an interesting cross-section of him finding some new company players in this film and him disposing of some old ones. Yeah, right. Um, who plays the other guy? Because Turkle, Turkle plays Arnaud, the war hero, the guy who's so yeah. beaten up at the end that he basically just gets like tied to the post to be shot right like because he mm-hmm. can't stand up which is a horrible it's incredibly brutal um, yeah i wrote a quote down if he's still alive in the morning pinch his cheeks a couple of times the general wants him to be conscious like this shit sucks why the fuck does anyone do this i'm not saying why do they enlist i'm saying like why 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 does anyone do it i don't know I'm the, the child. Why? I mean, you know, we're living like that. It's nice, too, that this movie is about the absurdity of execution, right? Like they give you a nice meal before they kill you. Like if you fracture your skull, they're like, don't let him die. We got to kill him. Like this is all still basically happening, except for the duck. I don't think you're going to get duck out of an American prison. Uh, the duck looks good. Uh, Timothy Carey, of course, ate that duck. Uh, I want to find the exact number because uh, it's because Kubrick did so many takes, of course. Uh, he ate that. It's pretty much a whole duck, right? Uh, 86 times. That's the thing. The way he's eating it, they have to reset with a clean duck every time. It's not like he's just pulling a drumstick off and they can d- d- cheat it to camera. He would eat it different every time somehow you know, in, the, in that miraculous Timothy Carey way. Duck is gamey. Like I couldn't eat like I couldn't eat two helpings. Very duck. rich. Yeah. Yeah. Very rich. Really, yeah. It'll really that'll really uh put you to sleep at a certain point. It's Ralph Meeker is the other guy, right? And he's right. he's from uh Kiss Me Deadly and he's he was in the he's in the Dirty Dozen later and so you know he's he's a guy. Uh, he's got a real you know, sort of nice clean face, nice square jawed guy. Um, but I don't I feel like we've talked about pretty much everyone in this movie now. Yes, yeah, we've yeah, we've I don't think we've yeah. really missed anyone here. The execution is, uh, yeah, is is very, very powerful and horrible. And then I really do find the next two scenes just as incredible. The scene where Dax has the showdown with Brulard, right? Where he's like, I wasn't doing this for, like, politics. Like, I, I genuinely thought this was, like, a miscarriage of justice. And Brulard is like, ew, like, what? what? I thought I understood you. Gross. <laughs> You're right. Horrible. Get out of my sight. And then the scene at the end with, with Kubrick's future wife singing this folk song, like, is, is, is in the best ending. Like, and apparently Kubrick was really embarrassed about it because he was like, I know I have a crush on this girl. 
I'm not putting her at the end just because I like her. I promise you guys. And I, I would have been like, yes, Stan. No, I know. <laughs> it's, it's a good ending. Yeah, it's a really good ending. Yeah. I mean, there's also just that thing with war movies where you're like watching this. She shows up and you realize, oh, I haven't seen a woman in 80 minutes. Right. Yes. Right. You know, this is like a weird stance of mine. I come back to a lot is that like I love it when movies like don't pretend to be interested in women when they clearly aren't. You know, and so movies like, you know, this, the thing, Stand By Me, yeah, where it's just like, we're living in a world of men. And it's like, great, thank you. I, L- I'm of happy that you're admitting that's what you're interested in. Yeah, because then when they're like, it's a world of men, but also there's three women and they're horribly written and they're always like whipping their hair out of ponytails. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> that's like if somebody's going to film something in Portland, Oregon, my hometown and like get the geography all wrong and get it just like, it's like, just don't just. Just admit that you're filming it in Georgia, which is where I, Tanya, was filmed because <laughs> of tax incentives or something. It's like, just be like, we're filming it in Georgia. It's set in Georgia. We're not saying this is the Pacific Northwest. We're not claiming to know anything about women. It's like, thank you. Good. Go know things about you, men. You rather people are sincere in their shortcomings or their lack of interest rather than the sort of the token... Well, look, look. Yeah. Well, come on. What if what if uh, Guinevere was a Celtic warrior? There, there's this thing like, I mean, it, I keep on coming back to it because it's just the most uh, fascinating cultural object of the year uh, 2022, year of our Lord. But uh, in the offer, uh, of course, I've been fully offer pilled. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Every episode ends with like the people who made the offer talking about how great the episode you just watched was. And sure, I do. I do love that. I do I love, love the it. propaganda show. Yeah, the, the clip show that airs afterwards. It's maybe yeah. better than the offer. Is that the sort of mini sods I get at the end of each episode of the offer? But um, the co-showrunner, I forget her name. She was also the showrunner on the uh, Al Pacino Nazi Hunter show. Sure, Hunters. Yes. Oh yeah, the show whose promo engines made me think. Oh, Fisher Stevens is looking more and more without like Al Pacino. Yes. <laughs> no, that's just no. Al Pacino. <laughs> um, but but there's a, one of those things where she said, like, when I came onto this project, it was really important to me that the female characters weren't just accessories to the men and that they actually had their own victories. And then you're like, but they but they didn't. That's not accurate. Right. You failed. Right. <laughs> right. right. Well, I'm sure that was off. important. She was like, it was important to me that we do that. And then we were unsuccessful. <laughs> well, they're like, they're <laughs> right. Yeah, they're, 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 she's like, she's, she's taking in breath to say the rest of the sentence. And then we cut away. Uh, what female characters are even in the offer, Griffin? Well, there's like Juno Temple is Al Ruddy's assistant. There's a character who's like the head of casting for Paramount. There's Al Ruddy's ex-wife, who was the woman who owned the Chateau Marmont, later uh, joined the Wild Wild Country cult. Like there are a couple primary female characters like that. And they want to really build up like what they accomplished in this time. But she's stuck fighting against the reality of like it was Hollywood in the 70s. Like the, a very yeah, they made very, the Godfather, right. <laughs> right? And like, meanwhile, the show is like completely uninterested in like Talia Shire or Diane Keaton or the people whose like work on the Godfather was like tangible, right? And I think maybe those two characters have three lines of dialogue between them, and like Talia Shire exists just to kind of be like a victim who's embarrassed on set. It's it's yes, it is that thing though. It's like. If you're dealing with the actual historical reality of this thing, but also the world that this thing existed in, and especially when the project is so much about, like, uh, I don't know, 
the ills of masculinity and whatever, to put a woman in there being like, I just want everyone to know. That I am making 67 cents for every dollar that yeah. Chris Khan is making. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, it's it, right. And then if there aren't meaningful roles to give people, then it just feels like another. It's like you're being asked. It's like you're getting an artificial sweetener. You're like, I'm yes. not. I yes. know that this tastes like something, but I'm not getting any energy from it. Right. <laughs> Uh, Michael Gandolfini's in the offer. I'm seeing a lot of names here. Danny Nucci. Haven't e- heard about him in a while. Everyone's in Danny the offer. Nucci. Paul McCrane's in the, the offer. The star of Titanic. Paul yes. McCrane. The only gay person at Performing Arts High in fame. It, you guys, you gotta take love- the pill. You gotta, you gotta accept the offer. The iceberg <laughs> is on the show. Yeah, the iceberg's I will not on the accept show. The offer. You gotta. You must uh, accept. I will. I will. I will, however, never forget uh, describing to my brother having just seen Titanic when I was 11 years old. And he was like, what happens? And I was like, well, at one point, the, 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 the uh, smokestack falls on this Italian guy and he goes, Mamma Mia, before it kills him. And then I rewatched the movie and I was like, oh, he doesn't say Mamma Mia. But I just, as an 11-year-old, I just imagined heart. that he did. <laughs> in your mind, he was spinning he a actually... pizza on one finger. <laughs> right. Curling his reality, mustache goes, on the ah! other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's like, it's a me, Fabrizio. I'm looking for Fabrizio. <laughs> I mean, I mean, the film's portrayal of the of of uh, the Irish American community is 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 pretty much that nuanced. So I guess that's what I was going for. Uh, but uh, Danny Nucci, what a name! Here he is. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy for him. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy for him too. Paths of Glory. Uh, no, it's a short, it's a blessedly short movie, Griff. We were saying this. Yes. Because, yeah. uh, you know, the works of Stanley Kubrick is a lot of long ones. Mm-hmm. You got Spartacus and Lolita coming up after this, which are both like, you know, over two and a half hours long. But also, I mean, this is in, in many ways a punishing movie. It is able it is. to is. thoroughly explore its subjects and its themes and, uh, uh, you know, I, I really place you in this world, but get you out within 88 minutes, which is kind of blissful. You, like, appreciate that it didn't, uh, it, it didn't torture you for the sake of it, you know? This goes to my very strong belief that, like, for a horror movie to be, like, over 90 minutes and, like, really 80 minutes, I think, is typically the ideal length. But, like, I'll give you up to nine on top of that and then if you're like 90 minutes long or longer it's like okay you've got to be really high concept for this to be worthwhile because i and i do think that this like in terms of the emotions it creates for me it's to some extent a horror movie because it's like you sit down you know that things are not going to go well unless you've like only seen the poster in which case maybe you think they'll go great for everybody and you're just like you're you're like okay i'm just watching everybody be ground down by this relentless unstoppable wheel and that's what i'm in for and like if you're watching a movie where like there's the idea at any point that there's real hope for people i think you can endure that for longer but this is like it is i i was curious also i wonder if there's like behind the scenes information that you guys have about like was it was it just what well i guess they had a pretty good budget so it's not like they were forced to make something short it's interesting to me that kubrick made a short movie that's interesting it is interesting that this movie is short although as griffin says 
it gets it all done and it's quite punishing to watch. Like, you know, a two and a half hour version of this movie might be unwatchably brutal. Yeah, like, right, right. Yeah. I, I think it would become numbing. Yeah. But maybe it is a, a budget thing in terms of like, we have a moderate budget and we have the scale. We can do the scale of the big battle. Right. But that's it. Like, well, there's not going to be like multiple, you know, gigantic. It's going to be one big battle and then a lot of chatting and uh, prison stuff. And yeah, right. That's the thing. Like, knowing the budget of this movie relative to the budget he gets on on the following films, I was surprised by how big the the battlefield sequence felt. You know, how wide it is, how many people there are, how many explosions there are, how extended it is. It, it goes on for a long time. And the answer is, like, that is the money sequence. And then the rest of the movie takes place in ditches and offices. Yeah, I do think it's a great film. That's really my I take. Did, I did too. On yeah. Paths of Glory. Yeah. Yeah. I really have uh, not anything bad to say about it. Yeah. I, th- I think it's one of his best films. And I think it is unusual that it's, you know, I think even people who love the killing, the sort of fear and desire, killer's kiss, the killing run feels like, well, that's the developmental. That's him figuring out his stuff, right? The killing is when he finally has sort of like a real grasp on the language. And then this somehow gets stuck in this zone where it's not thought of as one of the important ones, I think. Because from this movie on, it's like well, everything he does is huge and iconic and historic to some degree, you know? And I, I feel like this sort of sometimes gets lost in the shuffle, but I think it's one of his best films. I think Ebert even argued it was perhaps his best film. I'm not a Kubrick completist, so I can't say because i need to see you know you have to see everything before you can pronounce but i mean i to me it feels the most complete and coherent and like this sort of like perfectly crafted box you know where you're like a puzzle box everything fits together everything's tight everything works and then i feel like once you've made that you might be kind of bored by the idea of doing that again because you've already done it and then you would be like okay like what happens if we get baggy what happens if we really like play with boredom yes yes (laughs) the film came out in 57 uh christmas 57 uh although we're gonna do the box office game from like early 58 when it was zero oscar nominations but he gets it gets bafta for best film nomination he gets a writer's guild nomination kubrick for the script yeah, so there's right. There's it was a well received film that probably broke even ish. You know, it, like did okay. Uh, its big problem, of course, was it was not really released in Europe. It was apparently not even shown to the French censorship board. Wow, because they knew there was no chance that France would allow it. It was shown in Berlin, but there was so much protest that it was removed from the slate of the Berlin Film Festival. Uh, so Why are people it protesting? was um that it didn't make them look like cool badasses i don't know i guess it's basically just like this is too touchy for us uh even now i guess yeah yeah it is, i do appreciate it as a war movie where like everybody comes out looking terrible you don't get a ton of those no that's the thing about the idea of like kirk douglas saying like oh he wrote this happy ending script i'm like what ca- you know supposedly the general comes in and is like forget about it but like there's no character here to turn to yeah like there's no one in this movie where you're like well if kirk douglas could just talk to this guy who clearly has some moral backbone 
then maybe it's like no no the, the guy doesn't exist like it's just there's no one around you haven't set up a little rel who can show up at the end in the cop car and save you yeah we need to do the the national lampoon christmas vacation ending where brian doyle murray shows up and is like okay you guys i've, I've sorted it out it's gonna be fine it would be great if it was literally brian doyle murray showing <laughs> really him <laughs> he might have been alive yeah, it is like it's the, I think it's I'm going to you know what I am going to say? I think it's the best movie ever made about the American legal system. And it's a war movie set in France. So I that mean, that's a lot. And that's a good argument for everyone uh, doing an American accent, you know, not attempting to yeah. play for like it might have been somewhat intentional. Uh, it's just it's, they're just doing a ratatouille. It's just like, yes. why is Brian Dennehy in France? Who cares? Right. <laughs> it's fine. Forget it. <laughs> uh, yeah, Kubrick, of course, also the other thing is he makes no money on this movie. Yes. Uh, which is one reason he's going to Spartacus because he really needs to make some money. Daddy's got to get paid. Because he, he deferred his salary based, you know, hoping it would grow some money and it doesn't hmm. gross enough to pay him. Should we play the box office game, Griffin? Yes, please. Okay. Right, so, Sarah, this is this is uh, the segment where I try to guess the uh, the box office of the weekend the movie came out which is based on the fact that my father and I would read the box office uh, together every Monday as like the equivalent of him doing that with the sports scores with my brother. That's lovely. I will say it gets exponentially harder when the box office weekends are from uh, 50 years before I was years born. before you were born. Sure. Oh, I'm yes. doing the math no, wrong. It's, it's, yes. it's yes. not the best. Yeah, you, no. whatever. Yeah. You're very well spoken for a 14 year I old, I must I say. Don't, I don't know <laughs> how old I am or what year I was born or when this movie came out. The only math I understand is at the box office. Yeah. <laughs> well, Griffin, number one at the box office, the week that Paths of Glory goes wide, uh -huh. is the best picture winner of 1957, which is huh. still just dominating in theaters. The winner of it's 1957. It's also a war movie. It's a war movie. It's also a war movie, and it's about the futility of war, but it is an epic war movie uh, in, you know, beautiful Technicolor. Huh. Um, with all kinds of great performances, it's, it's a really good movie. It's from a technical mm -hmm. from a major. Oh, oh, is a bridge on the river choir? It is the bridge on the river choir. Yes, by David Lean, it's with Alec Guinness and William Holden. Uh, have you guys seen Kwai? You guys gone to the bridge? I have not crossed the bridge. I saw, I saw, I saw like the first 20 minutes with uh, my dad once because like he was a Technicolor war movie guy. Um, but we would often watch the first 20 minutes and then become bored. So. It, it's very much a movie I, I have been waiting to catch a, a rep screening of that I'm just like, I should mm. see that in a theater. Yeah. And I've never had the right opportunity. Incredible Alec Guinness performance. Uh, obviously he wins the Oscar. Mm -hmm. um, Number two at the box office is a literary adaptation of a Russian masterpiece. Okay. And I feel like one reason that this movie is getting made is that the star is a Russian. There, there is a Russian actor who is a major star at the time. Yul Brenner? Yul Brenner himself. So I guess they were kind of like, uh, okay, let's, let, I don't know, is there some Russian stuff we could put you in, right? Like, you know, because yeah. I, I, I did not, I did not know about this movie. Uh, I, I've actually was unaware of this one. Huh. Uh, but it's a Yul Brenner picture based on a, a great novel, great Russian novel. It's from, uh, directed by Richard Brooks. Huh. Griff, who made, you know, In Cold Blood and yeah. 
Elmer Gantry and what uh, what uh, what genre is it? I don't know. It's sort of like an epic family drama. Um, it's about a family. What? All right, what I'm just gonna tell. Yeah, you. what is this? It's the Brothers Karamazov. There's a Yul Brenner Brothers Karamazov movie. Yes, starring Yul Brenner and Lee J. Cobb, who is nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Wow. Pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, as you said, no idea this movie existed. Nah, yeah, well, I had no idea. Russia, I think of Lee K. Cobb. Yes. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> Listen here, Dimitri. <laughs> and William Shatner. <laughs> Shatner's in this. Yes, a young William Shatner. Uh, you've also got Maria Schell, who I feel like people might know, Austrian actress from, yeah. you know. Wow. Uh, some, some classics. Uh, yeah. So that's number two. Number three okay. uh, is a great courtroom drama from a great director one of his sort of straightforward noir dramas uh it's not judgment at nuremberg nope no it's not uh the director made a lot of comedies that's why i sort of say it's like one of his dramas is it a wilder uh but this is like yeah it's a billy wilder film it's a billy wilder courtroom movie nominee for best picture it's got a really good performance this will probably give it away uh by charles lawton um, as the prosecutor. Oh, uh, the def- yeah, the, he's the lawyer. Uh, fuck. What? What's it called? It's got one of those legal sounding yes, titles. Yes, yes. It's called Witness it's for, for the, the prosecution. prosecution. I knew it was f- something for the prosecution. <laughs> yes. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Tyrone Power, Marlene Dietrich, and Charles Lawton swinging in as the big lawyer guy. Uh, and Elsa Lanchester, your favorite. Uh, uh, you the bride. The bride. Um, the bride of Frankenstein herself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, good movie if no one's ever seen it. Well, the bride, the excuse me, the bride of Frankenstein's monster. Frankenstein was actually the name of the scientist who yeah, made the all monster. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Number five at the sorry, number four at the box office is a Best Picture winner from 1956 that's been re-released. Whoa! And it's just making more money. One of the worst films to ever win Best Picture, supposedly. I've actually never seen it. Uh, a great show on Earth. Nope, but you know, right vibe. Three hour epic. Uh, comedy around the world in 80 with days. A bunch of stars, yes, around yeah. the world in 80 days. Uh, yeah, never seen it. Me neither. Anyone seen Around the World in 80 Days? I watched the opening sequence once, it was like five minutes long. It's like an early Saul Bass sequence. That's all I got. <laughs> I saw the uh, the Jackie, the Jackie Chan version, <laughs> a lot shorter. Uh, sure, sure. Coogan's in that one, right? Yeah, Frank Karachi picture. That's got a weird ass cast. It's, it's Schwarzenegger's last movie before he becomes governor. Yes, yes, I remember that. What a life! Um, <laughs> number f- number five, Griffin. You will never have heard of. It is a documentary film shot okay. in Cinerama, which is the Cinerama. Yes. No, the yes, yes. Three yes, screen okay. curved. No, just for our listeners. Yeah. you know, curved thing. Uh, and it's about um the the search for. Uh, well, you know what? It's called Search for Paradise, and that's what it's about. About like looking for Shangri La. Is it an ad for the city of Trenton? <laughs> of course, of course, of course. It's about <laughs> Trenton, New Jersey. Um, no, it, Griff, it's about like some Air Force guy who retires and goes looking for, you know, paradise in yeah. his fighter jet, I guess. And wow. so it's a lot of like aerial photography and stuff. I don't know. It sounds boring as fuck, but it was uh, enough of a hit to chart. 
the other movies in the top 10, you've got Rain Tree Country. Okay. Uh, which is like a Mon- Monty Clift, Elizabeth Taylor, like a uh, Southern romance, big mm-hmm. uh, Civil War, you know, sort of Gone with the Windy kind of thing. I've never seen it. Uh, you've got A Farewell to Arms, the movie adaptation of uh, the Ernest Hemingway classic. Mm-hmm. One of the many adaptations, I guess. Um, and you've got Cowboy, a Delmer Dave's movie. I've never seen uh, that. With Glenn Ford, which I, I've seen. I think I have I think I have the criterion of it. Isn't there a criterion oh, of it? Oh, boy. With Glenn Ford and Jack Lemmon, which is a blast mm-hmm. uh, and was famously written in a bathtub. Oh, boy. Splish splash. <laughs> It was, it was written, 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 written by Dalton Trumbo. It was Trumboed. And then, and God created woman, which is that Roger Vadim movie yeah, with yeah, Brigitte yeah. Bardot. That, like, I remember watching when I was a teenager, like a little teenage cineast, being like, "All right, this thing's gonna be really raunchy." And then you watch it, and you're like, "Oh, I see. It's raunchy by 1950s standards." It's, it's yeah. Uh, this movie has not that raunchy. Full on neck. <laughs> right. This movie's got so much hair over boobs. Yeah. You're going to go That's crazy. It's called necking. The neck is the sexiest yeah. part. <laughs> it, it was rated X for two shoulders. <laughs> right. Um, it, it, there's something so weird about this uh, period where uh, color has existed comfortably for a while, mm. but there is still sure. a lot of black and white coexisting. Like you have yeah. like technology like Cinerama, you have black and white as an artistic choice, even if it's becoming less commercial. You have huge sort of modern epics and smaller more intimate things where like that that grouping of movies you just listed off don't feel like they exist at the same time for me. It's true. They they feel like 20 years on a spectrum right. of like 20 years. It's it is crazy. Somehow some of those movies feel like late 40s movies and some of them feel like early 60s movies, and all of them are in the mid to late 70s, uh, 50s. It reminds me of when in the Hudsucker Proxy, I think they mention at some point, they're like, yeah, it's like 1958 or something. And you're like, oh, my God, you guys have you're like very close to all of this being completely different. <laughs> that is uh, the best movie. We love Hudsucker. If, if we ever do the Coens, it's mostly for like the Hudsucker and Hail Caesar episodes, in my opinion. Yeah, I feel like Hudsucker is the episode I want to do more than anything. And Hail Caesar's the one that you want to do more than anything. And we like all of their movies. But those are the fucking two that we're like jonesing to talk about. Right. The movies that when they came out, the critics were like, this is very accomplished. But why did you do this? And for who? And the answer was for all of us who found it over the years. Right. The Oh, this is this is a, a, a smaller effort from the Coens. Love to call things a minor effort. <laughs> it is the best best thing the critics do. And I'm among them where I'm like, ah, minor effort. I'm like, you know what? What do I fucking know? Yeah, you don't fucking know. Sir, I've been listening to episodes of You're a Good and uh, really enjoying it. And as I said, we have uh, so many guests. If you are a listener to Blank Check uh, who have been on this show, have been on your show, Julie Klausner, recent guest, uh, Gether, as I mentioned, Dana Schwartz, Josh Gondelman. We haven't had Julia. Oh, no, we did have Julia. Oh, my God. We have to have her on again. That's right. She talked about Pretty in Pink. I'm like, have her in my like to get back on category. <laughs> yes. You should make the show. You know more about it than I do. Hey, hey, now. Uh, but also so many uh, great movies and and actually like art auteur driven movies that we have not gotten to cover yet. It was really fun listening to like uh, the Groundhog Day episode with Gondelman is uh, is great. That's a, a movie that's very ripe for exploring through uh, the prism of human emotions. But I, I highly recommend it. And I don't I feel like we don't need to recommend uh, you're wrong about because it's a humongous show. 
that everyone loves. That's but one of great. the commonly accepted higher art podcasts in the world. Naturally. Yeah. I mean, I do. I feel like You Are Good is like my like second child to like people. It's like my Gordy and Stand By Me. I'm like, my older child is a big ball player, but you know, my younger child writes stories and I'm very proud of them. Uh-huh. This is if Gordy had supportive parents. <laughs> right. <laughs> but thank you so much. That That means a lot to me because this is a wonderful show and I feel like it's true and I feel like it's like I actually I'm curious what you all think about this I feel like when I introduce my show I'm like I would never call it a movie criticism show because I feel like the term criticism at least on the internet has come to mean like nitpicking something to the point where you're like daring anyone to admit that they're capable of enjoying it Mm -hmm. regardless of what it is and I feel like movies are something where like if you're entering the conversation without checking your own baggage and being like, I am admitting like, these are the things that I love and irrationally just like want to experience. And we're not going to have an entirely rational critical conversation because like to be willing to talk about a movie for an hour is like, either you hate it so much that you have a ton to say about it or you're a fan. And there's some, I feel like some amount of love has to go into a conversation about movies. And I appreciate you making space for that yeah i mean well it's very nice of you to say uh and i don't want to speak for david who is a professional film critic but i i feel like we always just try to remind ourselves that like oh right the function of this show is the two of us specifically as people yeah and whoever the guest is talking about their relationship to that movie rather than trying to offer the definitive history or complete analysis for any of them I love that. Um, yeah. Also, we just like talking about movies. We don't. Just... I like talking about movies, and I do. I agree. Like you know, I just. I don't know. And sometimes there's bits too. Sometimes we we no we don't. Yeah, we and it's, no no it's, no but no. We don't. No, right. it's, like, right, right. it's a it's no, no bits, bits podcast. podcast. It's very Sorry. serious. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, and uh, I, th- I thank you to Heidi Vanderlee for, for helping uh, organize this along with all the other people I've mentioned who recommended that you be on the show over the years. Uh, and thank you all, you listeners out there, for supporting the show. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you to Marie Barty for our social media and helping produce the show in countless other ways. Thank you to Joe Bowen and Pat Reynolds for our artwork. AJ McKeon and Alex Barron for our editing, Lee Montgomery and the Great American Novel for our theme song, JJ Birch for our research. You can go to blankcheckpod.com for links to all sorts of nerdy shit, including our Patreon Blank Check special features where we do franchise commentaries and other sorts of bonus things. Uh, We're doing the Roger Moore Bond movies right now and some fun little Kubrick bonuses as well coming down the pike. Tune in next week for Spartacus with Richard Lawson. Although a lot of other people stood up and announced that they were the guest on that episode. Like Richard did yeah, say, I'll know, guest on confusing. Spartacus. And then other people went, I'll guest on Spartacus. I'll guest on Spartacus. But I do think Richard Lawson was the guest on that episode. I think so. I think so. We're still unpacking it. If memory can be trusted. Yeah. Uh, and as always, war is fucking stupid. <laughs>